Hi everyone, my name is Thiago and I'm a graduate student at Princeton University and I am your host. The Highlights is a sister podcast to Princeton Insights in collaboration with the Daily Princetonian. Insights is a newsletter written by Princeton undergrad, grad students and postdocs. We write about the most exciting and groundbreaking research being conducted here at Princeton in the form of short, fun and easy to read reviews. We cover a range of topics including psychology, neuroscience, biology, computer science and physics, to name a few. Make sure to check out our website at insights.princeton.edu. Today, I'll be co-hosting with Lisa Mankovskaya. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, hi everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, so my name is Lisa. I'm a graduate student in the Slavic department and I care deeply about communicating scientific discoveries to a greater audience. So I wrote a review for the paper that we're discussing today on child-directed speech and I'm so thrilled to talk in more detail about it. This paper is written by a fellow Princeton graduate student, Mira Nencheva, postdoc at the time Elise Piazza, and Professor Casey Lee Williams in the Department of Psychology. And we're delighted to have Mira with us today. But before we dive right in, I will let Tiago introduce Mira. Mira grew up in Bulgaria, where she first developed her interest in science. Later, she fell in love with psychology during her undergrad in symbolic systems at Stanford. She then received a master's in psychological and brain science from Dartmouth, and she's currently pursuing a PhD in psychology at Princeton, where she's working with Dr. Casey Lee Williams at the Princeton Baby Lab. Over the years, the subject of her research has changed in many ways. The most striking change was the size in her, of her participants. She went from studying elephants to working with mice, then adult humans, and finally now babies. In her graduate work, she's interested in the dynamics of communication between caregivers and children and how those shape learning in the moment and over the course of development. So thanks very much for being here, Mira. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, this is so exciting. So Mira, it's a very impressive bio, but could you actually tell us how your interest developed? Like, do you always want to study developmental psychology? No, definitely not. As you, as you saw, I've dabbled in quite a few different things. So when I first came to the U.S. for college, I was very set on becoming an immunologist for whatever reason. <laughs> I think that, you know, I'd studied bio and I really like learning about things related to like different kinds of blood cells. And so I thought that was really interesting. And then I got involved in this lab that was doing kind of a cross between immunology and psychiatry. And over time, I just like started realizing that some of the studies that I was thinking of and, and getting interested in really had more to do with this behavioral aspect of it and more, you know, things related to emotions, just in general, how people are interacting in the world. Um, and I took this psychology class my first year and I got really really interested in it and so we had to like generate a study idea and I just found myself kind of constantly thinking of different you know not very well informed but different psych questions and I just kept on kind of having all these questions and being interested in it and it was really kind of a, a moment of getting exposed to a field that I didn't really hear about when I was in high school because we didn't really have this at all view of experimental psychology I think we kind of stopped at Freud <laughs> and so I thought that I thought that you know psychology was this thing where you know you lay on a couch and you know you talk about about your feelings. But I think it, it was really interesting to me that you could use these scientific methods to understand behavior. And then from there on, I kind of kept on continuing to figure out what exactly about psychology I was interested in. So in the in the first lab that I was in, we were looking at stress response in elephants to earthquakes, of all things. You know, like I can look at decision making in mice. And so I did a summer doing that. Then like transitioned into human decision making in neuroscience. I did an honors thesis looking at decision making in dating apps. <laughs> so you have a question about that. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun project, but I wanted to kind of see the effect of smiles and different kinds of cues. But I think over time, what I got really interested in is this 
idea of social neuroscience and what are different cues and how do they guide our attention to different aspects of a social scene. Then my senior year, I was applying to grad schools and I had gotten into a program at Dartmouth and I was going to continue on studying different kinds of cues and how they're shaping our attention. And then my senior year, after I'd already gotten into grad school, I took this class and it had to do with how kids were learning to talk and all these different, you know, aspects about how different cues are then affecting kids. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. But you know, like I'm already, <laughs> already have grad school lined up and maybe for postdoc, I don't know. Yeah. And then over time when I was doing work at Dartmouth, I think I started to realize that all these cues that I was so interested in were especially important for babies because as adults, we have language. And so right now when I'm talking to you, I can communicate all sorts of things and just mm-hmm. the kind of symbolic aspect of language, you know, what these different words mean. But when it comes to really young infants, they don't necessarily have that in place. And so all these cues like different kinds of emotional expressions, intonation, all these different cues are really, you know, some of the most salient signals and are really the thing that allows the infant to figure out what to pay attention to at which moment is something Mm -hmm. important happening. Because when you think of a child's environment, there's so many different things. And so they kind of have to figure out what are what are the moments when I'm going to learn something important. And so this kind of bug got stuck in my head. And then I had an opportunity to, I was talking to my advisor at the time, and I was like, oh, this is so interesting. And they were like, okay, you know, you can go off and spend a year in a developmental lab. We're going to fund mm-hmm. you to do that. And then you can figure out what you want to do from there. So and, it was that yeah. a PhD program? It was a PhD program. Oh, yeah. Okay. So then I... I switched, and then I came to Princeton, <laughs> and then nice. I was like, this is it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> was it a transfer, or did you have to do the first years again? I had to. I had to. I mean, with PhD programs, you rarely ever fully transfer, and because I was doing a different line of research, I just yeah. started over. Yeah, but I feel pretty happy with what I'm working on now. I definitely have to say that even though I was like, this is it, there's still so much of it within developmental psychology so I'm still trying to figure out what kinds of cues am I most interested in what is kind of a unifying theme between the different things that I'm I'm interested in so mm-hmm. still figuring it out yeah well but that's some commitment I mean yeah. you changed programs to do developmental yeah. psychology yeah that's such an interesting story yeah, yeah so <laughs> is child-directed speech the same thing as baby talk um Sort of. Typically, when people think of baby talk, they think of people modifying the way that we speak and kind of speaking in ungrammatical ways. I think that's often, you know, like, <laughs> oh, mommy, say hi, or something like that, where it doesn't feel quite grammatical. I think child-directed speech, there is a little bit of that going on in the sense that I think in child-directed speech, we do use certain words um, that we sometimes don't as much use with adults. So, for example, you would use a lot of diminutives the kitty, the doggy, you know, like you typically mm-hmm. wouldn't talk that mm-hmm. way to an adult, but they are mostly grammatical. But what child-directed speech does is it has certain kinds of modifications that we do when we talk to babies. So for example, we tend to have quite shorter sentences. We tend to repeat things a lot. We oftentimes would use words in isolation. So you would say dog and then not necessarily embedded in a sentence. And also, in addition to these kind of structural changes in the way that we talk, there also are also a lot of things that we do in terms of our pitch. So for example, we would use higher pitch if you think about talking to a baby oftentimes you're in a totally different mm-hmm. you know speech register mm-hmm. we were or dogs yeah or <laughs> dogs but it is actually kind of interesting to think about what are what is the function of these modifications in pitch you know why do we widen our pitch contours why do we speak higher and you know one thing is for example Sometimes we would do some of these modifications when we're talking to somebody who doesn't speak English very well. So is it because babies don't speak English very well or, you know, whatever language you're doing? And Um, I appreciate it, actually. It makes it easier (laughs) to understand. Yeah, so one thing is, you know, making it easier to understand. Another thing is when we're thinking about, for example, dogs, 
oftentimes what you're doing is really you're conveying a lot of emotion. And so that's one of the things that people have argued is that infant-directed speech really conveys this kind of emotional message that is, you know, a little bit easier to understand than necessarily the words that you're using. And then finally, you know, the, the thing that was really interesting to us in this paper is that oftentimes people say that it's just more engaging. So really what it's doing is it's keeping infants' attention mm-hmm. on the conversation. And so if you think about a baby, like if you've ever interacted with one, oftentimes they're looking at many different things. They're not necessarily paying attention to you always. And so oftentimes what the parent is really trying to do is they're trying to communicate with the baby. So they're trying to keep their attention. Yeah. As, as a mom of a bilingual kid who needs to learn like <laughs> twice as many words, I, I'm so interested in your research. <laughs> keep talking. <laughs> How do I get his attention? <laughs> well, oftentimes like using these different kinds of contours is really interesting it's also I mean it's also interesting to think about depending on the age of the kid depending on their language development oftentimes parents would be modifying how how they're talking mm-hmm. to them and so there are certain cues that might be really useful early on but then over time parents would stop doing them as much so for example repetition is one of those there's yeah. really cool research showing that people will like use a lot more repetition but then as the kid learns more words that stops being as helpful and so they they actually oh, yeah. start using a greater diversity of words and less less repetition and it's all self-taught like every parent just figures it out on their own yeah so impressive and that's also another question like how there's not a ton of research on that but there's actually some really cool research out of uh, michael goldstein's lab showing that if you put parents in a room and they show them a video feed of their baby and they think that that's like a real video feed of their baby and you show their baby smiling at the moments when they're increasing their pitch they're just gonna keep going higher and higher <laughs> you know because obviously you know parents want their kid to be engaged and they want their kid yeah. to to be smiling in them and those are really rewarding cues and so oftentimes they would kind of keep doing what So, yeah, Yeah, babies are making you learn. Keep keep doing what works. Yeah, that's amazing. And so specifically in terms of pitch, so you, we know that this paper is about pitch primarily, but how, why did you decide um, to focus on pitch? And you mentioned that researchers say, well, it's more engaging. So how do these two things, you already mentioned that, but could you sort of transition us to the particular topic of the paper, the different pitch contours? Yeah, so the reason why we focus on pitch is that it's one of the first things that you notice about child-directed speech, and, and it's pretty, it's quite universal across many different cultures, that we tend mm-hmm. to have these exaggerated pitch contours, that we have, tend to have this higher pitch overall. And also it's this really dynamic cue in speech, it's nonstop changing, mm-hmm. especially when you're talking to an infant. And so the puzzle that I kind of had in my mind is that oftentimes we say, okay, infant-directed speech is more engaging, but the way that we're doing this is we're basically looking at how long babies are listening. So mm-hmm. in a typical study, you would play them a stream of infant-directed speech and you see how long it takes them for them to like look away and not be interested in, in hearing this speech. And then similarly, you do the same thing for adult-directed speech, which you know, you know, it's quite a bit more monotone, and then you see how long it takes them to look away and not want to listen to it anymore. For me, engagement oftentimes is really this kind of moment-to-moment thing. So Mm -hmm. it's not really, you know, like how long... I mean, one aspect of it is how long am I going to listen to something, but what's especially important for learning is, like, how much am I paying attention in this specific moment when you're introducing this novel word? Like, how much am I tuned in and how ready am I to receive the auditory information? How ready am I to receive the visual world around me? You know, if you're referring Mm -hmm. to an object, for example, and so... What we wanted to do is to look at pitch, but in this kind of more moment-to-moment scale, and really to understand when are infants tuning in, what are different moments of variation in pitch, so different kinds of contours, you know, whether pitch is going up or down, trying to 
figure out, you know, how are, how are these moments really shaping children's ability to learn? Um, because this is a question that, as a field, we haven't really looked at as much, especially when it comes mm-hmm. to these kind of auditory variations. Yeah, impressive. So, obviously, you are working with children and doing experiments with children. How is it? Uh, it's really it's really fun. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I also like developmental psychology, in addition to the questions being kind of interesting, is that it's this really interesting puzzle of how do you figure out when a baby's engaged? Because oftentimes yeah. with, you know, with adults, you can just ask them, you know, how are you feeling right now? How interesting was this? And, you know, with adults, there's a lot of challenges still with them, not necessarily being honest always when they're reporting right. things. But, um, but I think with infants, is this, like you have to have this really creative research design to get at what is going on in their heads. And so I think that's something that is a really um, fun puzzle. And obviously also babies are very cute and we get them (laughs) for a short period of time. And so we don't, you know, we only get the cute side. But yeah, we do all sorts of things like creating fun images to be on the screen. So there's this kind of creative aspect um, of it that I really Are there any memorable experiences of situations that are like really funny or really cute? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, there, there's a lot of, like, I think just the, the day-to-day, oftentimes, like, babies would just not sit through your experiments, so there's all <laughs> sorts of fun ways in which they do it. Sometimes they would just, like, if they're a little bit older, they would just walk away, <laughs> or they would, like, <laughs> spend the whole study looking at their shoe, which is very interesting, <laughs> or, like, try to communicate with their mom on whose lab they're sitting, and they would, like, turn around and, like, try to talk to the mom. I've had a lot of times, like, babies just being handed to me, and I'm like, even though I work with babies, I don't, like, I don't have a kid, so I don't know <laughs> how to do this, or, like... Battle training. <laughs> yeah. <Combat training. laughs> but yeah so it's it's been really fun to just kind of <laughs> also just really fun to interact with families and parents yeah. like it's it's actually pretty rare in adult research for people to really want to be sharing as much stuff with you i think oftentimes when we have parents in in the lab they really are interested in the research they want to talk to you about their experiences and you oftentimes get really interesting kind of intuitions um mm. from parents as well so right. yeah right this is so interesting. So you actually get, you know, some ideas from what parents yeah. tell you. Sometimes they're right in their intuition. Sometimes they're like way off. You know, social psychology is full of things where we think that that's very intuitive and is the case. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it's not quite. Do they want to follow up, you know, after you've studied everything? Do they want to, like I do, do they want to know, so how do I talk to my child? So can you give me some recommendations? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they sometimes do. And they're also sometimes they're interested in like, oh, how did my kid do? And so it's sometimes kind of difficult. <laughs> it's also sometimes kind of difficult to, to tell them because a lot of these measures, like, we, I don't know in the moment, like what your kid learned, like I'm going to analyze it after and oftentimes it's, you know, we average over many kids. Yeah, we do send them a newsletter every uh, year with oh, all of good. our studies in kind of a digestible format, which I think is really important because we really want to make sure that the families are getting something out of it. Yeah. Like they're so interested and they're so wonderful. Like all the families that we work with are really great and uh, they're, you know, they're taking time out of their very busy days, you know, yeah. you know, as a mom, it's like, it's hard yeah. to find. It's like you have time. both research and research communication built in, in yeah. your graduate what about wearables? Do the babies have to wear something? Is it easy to make them wear? Uh, it's really difficult to make them wear things, especially hats. They really do not <laughs> like hats. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa probably knows this. Uh, I confirm. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm a two-year-old. Two year no hats. 
Yeah, they, they don't like the hats. So something like functional near-infrared spectroscopy. Similar to, yeah, it's measuring kind of how blood is flowing around the brain and which parts of the brain are receiving more or less oxygen at any moment. And that mm. kind of serves as a proxy for our neural activity. So the, the neuroimaging method that I just mentioned, it, it can be challenging to get babies to wear a hat. Normally, you just kind of have to have the, the cap ready and then you just like plop it on oh, and finger, <laughs> fingers crossed that they're distracted at that moment and then for eye tracking what the, the way that our eye tracker works is you have to put a sticker on them uh, and that allows them to kind of move around because you can't really keep them still and allows them to move mm. around and for the eye tracker to figure out how far are they from the lens you know and then estimate their their people size but they sometimes don't like the sticker it's just so oh. it's so heartbreaking sometimes it just mm. would put the sticker on and they would just like start crying like you just put Aww. something really awful on them and they're like I don't like the sticker and so there's different kind of ways to and what do you do in this case do you just cancel the session so we have some tricks to before that happens I think if a kid is really like if they're crying like at any point in the session they just don't want to continue you would think that you know it's like the parent consenting but really like a, a one or a two year old they'll let you know so we, we definitely don't we don't force them to do any Thing. And I think that's pretty important to us as well because they are, you know, they're human participants. And for any kind of human subjects research, you really want to make sure that there's consent from from the person who's doing it, regardless of whether they're like two or you know they're twenty something. So yeah, so we really want to make sure that they're comfortable. So if if they're crying and they don't like it, then we just hang out with them for a little bit, and then they go home, and we give them you know t-shirts and books. <laughs> <laughs> But what I what I typically do is our stickers have kind of a like a black and white circle pattern and we have this little mm -hmm. little zebra on the room and so we call it the zebra room and oftentimes it's like oh you know when we go into the zebra room we have to dress up like zebras <laughs> and sometimes you know the parent would put the sticker on somewhere this on their smart. body so it feels you know like everyone's doing it sometimes I would put it on too so now we're all zebras and you know <laughs> <laughs> different ways to do it but I think usually they're fine like some kids really like stickers and actually the, the problem is that they want to put stickers everywhere and you can't do that for the eye tracker I think I would be one of these <laughs> yeah they're like oh yay stickers i'm just gonna put them everywhere and it's like no <laughs> can't do that yeah. mm -hmm. so could you could you tell us more about you know what do you exactly do with this method in this paper yeah so typically when people use pupillometry um so it just for people who don't know what pupillometry is, it's basically we're measuring how um, wide your pupils are getting and how they're changing inside, so how much they're dilating and constricting over time. And what's really interesting is the kind of the neural mechanisms that are controlling this are in centers of the brain that are really tied to a whole lot of things. So they're tied to how kind of intensely you're feeling at the moment. They're tied to things like, you know, how much like stuff you're doing in your head. So if I'm making you do like, you know, all sorts of math in your head while you're trying to, you know, record a podcast, your pupils are gonna <laughs> dilate because you're gonna be experiencing a lot of cognitive load. And so they're tied to all these different aspects in terms of how we're processing things. And so oftentimes what people would do is they would have some sort of a stimulus, um, you know, some sort of like an image, maybe like an emotional image, and then they would measure how your pupils are dilating. What we're doing here is a little bit different in the sense that we're not, you know, showing them kind of a one-time event and then seeing what happens afterwards. Mm -hmm. We really are interested in these really kind of moment-to-moment -moment fluctuations in, in how the kid is processing speech. And so what we're doing is we're recording these changes in pupil size over the course of, for example, a story or a sentence. And 
There's something really interesting. Um, I didn't come up with this. There's a really cool paper by Talia Wheatley and uh, Olivia Kang from 2017. And what they came up with as an idea is that, you know, when we're all paying attention to the same, let's say, stream of audio information, if you're listening to this podcast right now, your pupils are going to be responding to these moment-to-moment changes in what you're hearing. And if at the same time, for example, you're not actually paying attention to the podcast, you're like reading your email <laughs> or doing something else, or you're even on like a, you know, on a Zoom call in the background and you're actually paying attention to that, your pupil dilations are actually going to be coupled not to what you're listening to in terms of the podcast, but they're going to be coupled to something else. So they really are responding to the thing in your environment that you're tuned into and you're paying attention to. And so there's kind of an important byproduct of this is that if, like, let's say me and Lisa are both listening to the same thing and we're both really (laughs) paying attention at the exact same moments, our pupils are going to be doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so the idea in this paper in 2017 was that, you know, when people are listening to emotional stories, their pupil dilations tend to synchronize at these moments when, uh, you know, it's the most salient moment in the story. So I think Mm -hmm. they had one where it's kind of the build up to like a first kiss and, you know, in the moment when it's like, oh, it's the culmination, you know, it's like (laughs) sitting under the stars and it's about to happen. Um, And so in those, in that moment, everyone's pupil dilations are like, oh yeah, synchronized. We're all paying attention. (laughs) And so, yeah, so what we're doing here is that we wanted to use this in uh, toddler And the reason why we wanted to do this is that in toddlers, we have so few measures of how engaged they are in the moment. And so this really allowed us to not only look at how engaged they are throughout, you know, a story that is told in infant-directed speech versus adult-directed speech, but also how engaged they are over the course of a single word that has a different kind of contour. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was kind of our idea to really have this more precise measure in terms of, you know, the timing of when they are really engaged. And what did you want to test with this engagement? We wanted to see, um, first of all, which moments in infant-directed speech are more engaging, at least in terms of pitch. This is a very kind of first step in this. There's obviously a lot more going on in infant-directed speech beyond uh, pitch, but we wanted to see which moments are most engaging. So, you know, what kind of variation, whether the pitch is going up or down. And what we wanted to see is how that is affecting kids' learning. So... If presumably they, like this is an actual measure, because we weren't sure (laughs) how this is going to work with with babies, if this is an actual measure of engagement, then in the moments when they're most engaged, you would expect that they would also be learning better. So in the last study, we introduced these novel words. They're all made-up words with these made-up objects Mm -hmm. uh, that come with them, and we try to teach them uh, to toddlers with these different pitch contours. And so uh, then afterwards, we looked at whether the words that they showed this kind of higher, more similar pupil response to other toddlers who are listening to the same word at the same moment, if those moments when, you know, they're paying the most attention, if they were then related to better learning. So if they then learned those words better. How do you measure if they learned something? So the first part of the study, um, we would show them an image of, let's say, some sort of a made-up, like, animal. And Mm -hmm. I'm saying this animal is called, like, bozu. (laughs) <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I would just keep saying like, oh, look, it's Bozu. Like, oh, who's that? It's Bozu. And so I would keep saying that. And over time, babies would learn mm-hmm. that word, presumably, maybe. And so we would do this with several different made-up words like this. And then afterwards, in the second part is when we're testing whether they actually learn. So this first part is kind of the training part. And so then we would show them two images side by side. And one of them is Bozu, but the other one is the Dax, which is another kind of made-up animal, for example. Um, and we would ask them like, oh, where is the Bosu? Do you see it? Um, And if their eyes 
spend most of the time on Bosu, we would presume that they've learned um, mm. that Bosu is that image rather than the other one. And we would do it in all sorts of, you know, combinations of different side and obviously make sure that we vary the images because sometimes babies would really like to look at the Bosu image regardless of what we call it. <laughs> so we want to make sure that that's not why they're, they're looking at it. So we, we make sure that we kind of switch things up. But that's usually how we measure it. So we would show two things side by side. And we, on the eye tracker, can see, you know, how long did they spend on this image? How quickly do their eyes get there? Um, and are these words something they remember in the long term? There's a lot of studies <laughs> that show that no. Okay. <laughs> so after such, after such a short lab study, they, like, even if you give them something like 10 or 15 minutes, a break, and then you test them again, they'll be like, I have no memory of anything. Mm. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not only have to do you need to use the right pitch of the parent, you also need to repeat. <laughs> yes, you definitely need to repeat. So they they won't learn them, especially at this age. They won't learn them just from a one shot kind of mm -hmm. thing. And so circling back to the actual pitches, so mm -hmm. we understood uh, the importance of attention. But could you walk us through what do these um, pitch contours do? Yeah, so we first wanted to start with a little bit of a blank slate in, in terms of not assuming what those pitch contours are. Mm -hmm. I think in retrospect, when we look at what they are, it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess and I don't know what else pitch could be doing <laughs> in, like, in such a short period of time over the course of a word. Um, but what we did is we went to this huge database of child active speech and we looked at parents pitched during nouns and we just isolated you know the pitch during hundreds to like over a thousand nouns and we did this kind of analysis that allows us to see pull out what kinds of groups are in there so it's called a clustering analysis and um, we saw that there were these several different kinds of pitch that parents tend to use I mentioned them earlier so there was the rise this kitty looks cool the fall this kitty looks cool and then this kind of hill contour. Mm. This kitty looks cool. And then mm. a valley contour. This kitty looks cool. What is interesting is there is some prior work that shows that parents do use some of these contours in very specific ways. For example, the hill contour that we found that there was this kind of heightened attention to and overall better learning for is a contour that parents use to emphasize. What, so, what's a, could, could you demonstrate? <laughs> yeah, the hill contour is actually the easiest one to do because it comes the most naturally. So it's like kitty you know like you go up and then down so you know for example you'd be like look at the doggy you know and that's oftentimes like that word kind of pops out a little bit and so it's used mm -hmm. for it's used for emphasis it's oftentimes something that parents would use when they're introducing a new word so for example if you have them like read a book and we have these like new words that we've popped in parents would use that contour with that there's some prior research showing that or you know if, you're, if they're reading a book and we highlight certain words and we're like these are important words they would use that mm. kind of contour with it so it's kind of interesting that it seems like parents are using this contour to emphasize and so there's this kind of chicken and egg problem that i don't have <laughs> the answer to which is are parents using this contour because babies are paying more attention to it? Or is it that babies are paying more attention to this because parents are using it mm. to emphasize? So if they're associating this with some kind of important information, maybe over time they learn this. It's also possible that it's both, but we don't, we don't really know. And what is the least interesting contour? It's the valley contour, which is really difficult to do on the spot. <laughs> it, it occurs in natural speech, and when it occurs in natural speech, it sounds natural. But when you try to do it by yourself, it just sounds really weird. Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why in our uh, 
I think it's like the second study in the paper, uh, we looked at, um, you know, we were looking at these contours in these like sentences that we recorded and we made these like super controlled recordings just to make sure that like, you know, the average pitch was the same, even though it was varying over the course of the noun. And Elise Piazza, who's the co-author on this, she's um, amazing. She's also now an assistant professor at Rochester, and you should go check her out. She's good, great. Good, good, um, good, good, but she good, had good. musical training, and so luckily she was recording these uh, stimuli, and it took us so long to get them right and to record them and to make sure everything was controlled and to make sure that they were, like, really closely replicating the kinds of groups that we saw earlier but the sentences sounded really weird <laughs> we wanted to make sure that this isn't just you know the results that we're seeing in terms of attention isn't something about our sentences being really weird <laughs> sounding kind of robotic and odd <laughs> especially we had this one flat contour which we wanted to just like add as a baseline but it just sounded something like kitty because <laughs> it's so hard to keep your pitch the same like yeah. exactly the same you know and so it was obviously pretty artificial so what we did is we went to this natural story that we had recorded in child-directed speech and we found the words that have these contours and we managed to replicate so to show the exact same pattern of the extent to which kids were paying attention to these different contours but in this naturally occurring thing that didn't sound weird um so yeah, yeah. So to wrap up, what is the take-home message of the paper? I think it's, well, it's a few things. The, I think the main kind of contribution, I think, was a little bit more of a methodological one, as in, you know, we can use this method of really understanding when babies are paying attention on this moment-to-moment -moment scale, um, and we can use it to examine all sorts of things. Pitch is just one thing, so I think this is kind of a case study. I think the other thing is that babies really need seem to be really tuned into the dynamics of speech. So there are these moments that are really optimal for learning, and it's not necessarily just because something is child-directed speech. It means they're paying attention 100% at every single moment, and they're learning equally at every single moment. Really what it is is that learning happens over these many moments in time, and so it's really important to understand what are the characteristics of the moment um, and, you know, we started off with pitch, but there's so many other things that are happening, both within speech, but also within the environment in which uh, parents mm -hmm. and children are interacting in. And what are, so what are next plans? Where, where do you ne go next after those pitches and their effects? Yeah, so we're, we're doing right now an analysis. It was a collaborative project with many labs, and so we're, we're using their, their data where they looked at this kind of comparison between infant-directed and adult-directed speech. And so what we're going to be looking at is, you know, the extent to which these different features, beyond just pitch, are driving attention in different moments. And we're also going to be expanding to other kinds of cues. So things like, you know, facial expressions or even, you know, things related to the vocal expression of emotion or, you know, the extent to which they're using different kinds of words or things related to the structure Ooh. of speech. So really trying to put together all these different kinds of cues that are available to children that are dynamically changing from one moment to the next to understand what are these moments that are optimal for, for learning. Mm. Well, I'll certainly stay tuned. <laughs> yes, me too. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think we can call it a day then. It was very nice having you here. Thank you very much for talking with us. Yeah, thank you so much. This is really fun to, to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it was a great conversation <laughs> beyond everything. Thank you so much, Mia. Yeah, thank you so much. This episode of The Highlights was written by Thiago Tarrafa Varela and Lisa Mankovskaya. It was produced by Isabel Rodriguez under the 145th Managing Board of the Daily Princetonian. For more podcasts and other digital media from the Prince, visit www.dailyprincetonian.com. Many thanks to Omira Nancheva for speaking with us. 
To read more about her work, check out the Princeton Insights article covering her research, which can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening, and until next time!